This is Napoleon Wilson. Got a smoke? Close the door. I want you to know something, Wilson. Now, I don't enjoy driving anybody to death row. You try anything. Anything. I've got two guards with shotguns, and I'll blow you apart. Sure could use a smoke. Do you understand me, Wilson? You mumble a little bit. I get the general idea. Welcome to Screen Run. I'm your host, the Lady Wan, and I'm here with... Chris Scalzo. <laughs> Screen Run is the show where Chris and I explore the films of a particular artist one by one. And in season three, we are discussing the films of John Carpenter. And I feel like every time we say his name, we should like just drop a synth note in the background. <laughs> Thank you for being ready. Um, no as is tradition, Chris and I kicked off the season just the two of us. But today we are joined by an esteemed guest. It's Jason from Binge Movies. Hi, Jason. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Jason, mm-hmm. what is your relationship with John Carpenter? Is this Carpenter your personal lord and savior? <laughs> no. You know what? It took me about a two Mississippi to figure that out to catch that while you were down there. I met John probably in about 94 in a crowded restaurant. I was sitting at a table... I could see him talking to the person up front, the hostess. Was it Adrian Barbeau? No. And the hostess came over and said, I'm really sorry, sir. We were, we were about halfway through the meal. I'm really, really sorry, sir. But that is John Carpenter. And you're sitting at his usual table. And he's wondering if maybe you could relocate yourself. And so me and my family, we did. And um, at the end of the night, it turned out that he paid our entire bill. And that was pretty exciting. And then he slipped his business card in there. With his hotel number, his hotel room number in there, and okay. we made yeah. passionate love. Sure. <laughs> the likes of which I've never experienced orgasm so deep. I feel like this would have been you. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. Is that what you were saying afterwards? That's what my asshole was saying afterwards. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going for there. <laughs> All right, I see we're off to a good start. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is going great. <laughs> Every season has to it has to have a moment where something breaks in, and I think this is that moment. No, I love John oh. Carpenter. My favorite John Carpenter quote is: "He said, you know, there's when all the remakes were going on. I guess that's still a thing. But he yeah. said, well, how do you feel about all of these people remaking your movies? Because a lot of the remakes he had nothing to do with. And um, he said, uh, do you know what I think about the remakes? And they said, oh, that's why we're asking you. He said, what I think about the remakes is I put my hand out, I open it, and money appears. (laughs) Fat stack. Yeah, he just loves getting the residual checks because he can do music with his sons and play video games. He loves to play Far Cry and Destiny, and it's not a joke. (laughs) And he just wants to be able to – he's like – teasing as this is very apropos that well maybe i will direct my first movie in 10 years and i would like to say please sir don't you've already (laughs) impugned your own legacy enough from the 1990s through the 2000s no more just put out yeah put out cool albums do some documentaries he's got a great synthwave documentary he's a part of and just leave it alone just play your play your destiny to you know play far cry or fallout or whichever one he likes and then just be done with it yeah, and just 
backpack randos on hotel rooms when you're on yeah. tour. Smoke 50 pack of cigarettes a day, complain about the movie business whenever you're interviewed, and be done with it. He sounds like a movie podcaster. <laughs> he sounds like Chris Scalzo, yeah. I'm on the fence on how to take that. So, uh, Chris, how, yeah. how would you describe... Oh my god, I haven't said what movie we're talking about. Oh, probably a good idea. We're going to talk about Carpenter's second movie, because that's what we do here. We go in order. Assault on Precinct 13. Bum, 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 bum. I, it's, it's been ringing in my head for days, because I saw this movie five days ago. But Chris, yeah, uh-huh. when when did you first see this film? I have never seen it all the way through up until oh. about three years ago. I'd always kind of seen bits and pieces of it, but I had never sat down and watched the whole thing. And then Shout Factory had their Blu-ray release they put out, and it was like 12 bucks on Amazon. And I'm thinking, I love me some Carpenter. I liked what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Let's pull the sugar. So then I, I got it, got it home, and then like that weekend I watched it all the way through, obviously. Then like I rewatched it for the big show. But uh, yeah, that was it. About three, four years ago was the first time I actually sat through and watched the whole thing. I don't have a long familiarity with this work. Much longer than me. And it wasn't like I'd ever, I wasn't wasn't avoiding it in any capacity, right? It's just one of those things where it just had never... Just never got around to it. ...crossed my path. Yeah, and I have a habit of watching some things over and over again instead of seeking out sometimes new content. Like I've seen the thing, I don't know, (laughs) two, three dozen times. Yeah. You know, so. uh, Jason, when did you first see this film? For those without the aid of visuals at home listening to this in an audio format, there are two <laughs> white guys on this podcast. One <laughs> is mustachioed and the other one is baby-faced. Chris Scalzo <laughs> is a swarthy Italian gentleman. He's mustachioed. <laughs> I'm of mixed ancestry. It's a whole thing in the family. Don't even get me started. I have no facial hair. Um, cannot grow facial hair. But I have the exact same story as Chris Scalzo, so all whites are the same. All <laughs> white men of a certain age are the same, especially when it comes to John Carpenter. They all claim mm-hmm. to love him. They all claim that he's their favorite filmmaker, and none of them have seen Assault on Precinct 13 until three years ago. <laughs> when it became more widely available, it's not one that was shown on TV all that much. Mm-hmm. I saw bits right. and pieces of it growing up. I saw the remake when that uh, Blu-ray DVD came out. Uh, it also hit like a fresh remaster, hit streaming. I got, it, I bought it digitally, and I watched it. And I watched it in conjunction with a John Carpenter retrospective I did over at Binge Movies with my dearly departed mm-hmm. Pat. I'll leave the rest of my thoughts for later in the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> this movie falls into my favorite genre of movie, which is movies that happen in just about a day. Chris, would you describe briefly the plot? Of Assault on Precinct 13? So, sure. (laughs) There is... Just rough outline. Okay, that's fine. So we open up basically with a local gang, Street Thunder, right? And they're basically set up by the Popo. And they get all kind of... A bunch of them get all shot and killed. So they're going to swear revenge on the police. But in the meantime, before they go do anything crazy, they start circling this area. And there's an ice cream man who they're going to... I don't know, who notices them. A little girl comes up. Right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, Please, can I get an ice cream? And she asks for a vanilla swirl. <laughs> and he gives her her ice cream. And then she realizes, Hey, 
This is regular vanilla. So she walks back to the <laughs> ice cream truck. But what has happened in the interim is our main bad guy has said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to bust up this kid in the ice cream truck. And then once he does that, the girl comes back to get her ice cream fixed. And then I want a vanilla twist. And she's done. She's done, <laughs> right? And possibly one of the most visceral, shocking scenes that I've seen. I don't know what it is. It's not like it's particularly bloody, mm-hmm. right? They do have a um, a squib that shoots on the girl. But it's still, it is a shocking experience. And maybe one of the challenges I may have with the film is it's probably the most effective and shocking scene in the entire movie is the when the girl gets shot. So her father, who was in the phone booth at the time, Remember phone booths? I don't know how many people are old enough to remember phone booths. Uh, he then sees this all go down and then sees the bad guy's tail away. He starts chasing after him, grabs a gun from the ice cream truck, shoots the gang's leader. And then instead of getting back into his car like somebody would normally do, he decides to run instead. Mm-hmm. And he runs into this police station, which is closing. There is one guy, one lieutenant, who's basically there to, what, just kind of oversee it yeah. over one of its last nights. Just a shutdown, yeah. This guy runs in. He's hysterical. The gang comes hunting this guy down because they want to kill him for killing their boss. And then in the interim, there's a bus moving an inmate. And it's taking a lot of time. I know it's really, it's a simple concept, but I'm spending a lot of time <laughs> with the tournament. There's a bus with a in- bunch of inmates. They're getting transferred. And one of them is this guy, Napoleon Wilson, which is one of my favorite character names probably ever. And one of them, the guys in the bus gets sick. They have to stop off at the closest police station, which turns out to be this station that's closing. So the inmates pile into this to this police station while they attend to the sick guy. And then the gang, as we said, lays siege. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. On the police station, uh, planning to kill everybody, and they have to take a stand. Think of it kind of as a carpenter, and Carpenter has said this, his version kind of a real Bravo. Mm-hmm. Which is something we'll talk about probably in a little bit either yeah. way, because I have a lot of issues with Rio Bravo. Oh. Um, so either way, but yeah, that's basically what you got. It's these few remaining law enforcement officers with these prisoners and some clerical people trying to take a stand against a gang determined to kill everybody in the building. I probably could have just said that. Huh? Yeah, yeah, but but I appreciated the beat for beat walk through yeah. of the movie <laughs> of, of murder of. Kim, uh, Kim could, you, could you please provide a now. rough outline of the film yeah. it was a minute for minute breakdown at least we know you paid attention you don't need to watch it now yeah no you're good please can I get an ice cream exactly <laughs> so well let's uh so let's let's get into some of the the things you said there so um okay let me kind of Back up a little bit. So this movie, like our last one, Dark Star, was also written by John Carpenter. And he once again did the score. And he served as the editor for the film, but under the pseudonym John T. Chance, which is John Wayne's character's name in Rio Bravo. Mm -hmm. uh, That inspired quite a bit of the film, as you said. So let's hear what your problems are with Rio Bravo, because I've never seen it. Rio Bravo is Howard Hawks' answer to, I think it is a highly superior film, High Noon. Where um, Gary Cooper, there's a gang coming in and he has to basically stand up to these bad guys. And he goes to everybody in the town to help him. And they're all terrified and they say no. It's basically him and he eventually ends up getting saved by his partner there, his wife. 
and Howard Hawks. And John Wayne hated that movie because they said it was cowardly, it was un-American, and that's not how people would respond. So they made Rio Bravo basically in response to High Noon. But the problem is, is that High Noon was also, you got to remember when it was made. Because it was, I think, a brilliant movie about McCarthyism and blacklisting. In fact, the writer of that movie mm. was blacklisted and chased off to London for years. And Howard Hawks played a major part in getting that guy run out of the country. Mm. So Hawks was a complete dick about it. And it just, it's always bothered me that Rio Bravo is considered like kind of this classic film in a response to High Noon. When I think High Noon is really a superior and more interesting film. But that's basically my problem with it. That's fair. It's fair. Now I I feel like I need a double feature of both of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good idea. That Rio Bravo specifically, that's kind of the vibe that Carpenter had in mind. He wanted to make a Western, but he got $100,000 for the budget. So that wasn't going to happen. So he basically took the idea for Rio Bravo and, and modernized it because budget. And he originally called the film the Anderson Alamo, but the studio heads were like, that's boring. And then it was called The Siege for a while. This is a siege. It's a goddamn siege. Which is <laughs> getting funnier every time you play it. Um, eventually, the distributor changed it to Assault on Precinct 13 because it sounded more ominous. And um, it is factually incorrect as to what's happening, but it is more ominous. It sounds very spooky. It is a better title. Jason, what do you think? Is that a better title? What would you have gone with? It's a better title. It's an exploitation drive-in movie title, and this is an exploitation drive-in film with Western sensibilities. There you go. The only problem is it's not Precinct 13, no. but that's fine. No. That's <laughs> fine. We don't, we don't need to worry about that. Details. Yeah. It's pre- Precinct think, 9? Yeah, but I think 13, obviously, it's an unlucky number, and everybody here... Yes. There's the theme of people being lucky and yeah. unlucky. So, yeah. it makes sense. It, oh, it definitely makes sense. Uh, but technically, in the film, it is Precinct 9, Division 13, and then if you look at the building, it says Precinct 14. So... <laughs> So before we get into the meat of the movie, uh, just a little bit more background. So this was filmed in just 20 days in November 1975, 10 days on set, 10 days on location. And this was Carpenter's first real movie that he directed, like an actual movie movie. Because um, way he described Dark Star was like, shoot a couple scenes, go get some money, shoot a couple scenes, go get some money. And so this was like 20 actual days. And he said it was like exhausting to make a movie like a grown-up which i thought was pretty funny that it was like dang this this is actually a job like yeah yeah man <laughs> yeah he wasn't used to shooting like all day yeah. <laughs> so that was fun for him to find out it post-college yeah work sucks um <laughs> even when it's what you want it to be but the movie didn't actually do very well in the u.s it had mixed reviews and a mediocre box office but it was very highly received in the uk and at the Cannes film festival and carpenters joked that in the U.S., he's a bum, but overseas, he's an artiste. So that is his to enjoy. I think, uh, like you said, Jason, the film bros out there probably came to it a little later. But a lot of people came to it in the 90s when Mel Gibson talked about how a little girl gets killed in it. And it had a boom on home video when he told that story on a late night show. And everybody was like, a little girl gets killed. Let's go rent that movie. <laughs> and... um it had like a second second little life for a while. I feel like we have to we have to really talk about this because I didn't know that was the history of this movie that everybody was so excited about a little girl getting killed. Not excited in a good way, excited in like a morbid intrigue way. But then that little girl is Kim Richards, who I just know from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Like she is 
Kim, you stole my goddamn house, Richards. She is Kim. Let's talk about the husband, Richards. And I have one more. Kim, I've had enough of you. You beast, Richards. That woman is incredible. And I did not expect to watch her get shot as a kid. I wanted Vanilla Twist. Wait a minute. I had no idea that she was a... Uh, I haven't watched any of the Housewives because I'm a did you very, not very see manly my tweet? kind of guy. When no. I was like, that that gift, that, that you know, 50-something-year-old woman, that's her. No, and I have you like as a, as <laughs> you a mute super me. follow, whatever it is, so that everything you do pops up, and then I, I'll print up a bunch of them. <laughs> but... No, I didn't. I didn't realize. I knew That's she was like a her. Disney star, right? She was in what Escape from Which Mountain? Yeah, or something mm-hmm. like Escape to Which Mountain. Yeah, I didn't realize that who her nieces are. Yes, yes. For the audience at home, do we want to say who those nieces are? Yeah, Paris and uh, Nikki Hilton. Yeah, yeah. her sister. Um, so her, she has two sisters. Her one sister is Kathy Hilton, mother of Paris and Nikki, and. I don't know. There's a handful of other ones nobody knows about. And Kyle Richards, who's also still on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Going strong, man. She's an OG. So yeah, that's... I I knew that both Kim and Kyle were like child actors. And Kyle, we'll talk about her uh, next week. She's in Halloween. Yep. And in, and in Halloween Kills. Yeah. So I was just very, very excited about that being Kim Richards. Jason, I, yeah, quick little aside... Because uh, I like to blow up Juan's foreman as much as possible. <laughs> what, what were your thoughts on Halloween Kills? I'm always curious for the people's opinion. Because I actually enjoyed it. And the consensus of opinion is that it was horrible. I thought I thought it was one of the worst movies in the entire series of a series of terrible films, which is the Halloween series. Yeah, I think Halloween is uh, like not as bad as like Hellraiser. No, no, yeah. Hellraiser has just went into that full on every two years somebody else wants to has the rights and is trying to keep the rights, so let's just put a guy after Douglas Doug Bradley decides not to show up anymore and there's like put a guy in the pinhead suit, show him for five yeah. seconds to the end, call it a Hellraiser movie so we can keep the rights. <laughs> and eventually a bigger bidder will come along and buy it. And that did happen and now you're getting a Hellraiser series out of it. So belief for those people who exploited an IP <laughs> for twenty years. <laughs> I think, but I think like Halloween is up there too as as a really kind of slap shot bad franchise. Outside of part one, I mean part one for the first yes. one. I of course love part three, but um, which is a whole obviously a very different sure. beast. But yeah, no, I don't get all the hate for kills. I I actually really evil dies it. tonight. <laughs> well, that's. Yeah, we had that as a drop on on my other show for like months. Chris, if you get me started on this, <laughs> yeah. we'll end up doing a Halloween Kills retrospective. Yeah. And I'm here just talk about it. And I've never seen right, it, so I will not get to say we'll anything. Do a special. <laughs> it's right, best we'll, not to we'll, get, we'll get me started. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that for uh, when Halloween ends. Come out, we'll figure something. Oh, out. Sure, but all right, yeah. sorry about that. Please. Uh, well, okay. One last thing about uh, little Kathy. Little Kathy being murdered. One last thing about her. Um, So there was no way that was going to be allowed in the movie and not get an X rating. So Carpenter submits it to the MPAA without that particular shot in the scene. And they approve it, give him an R, and then he just puts it back in and sends it out to the distributors. I love that. Didn't something else I read too recently that happened where they got an X? Was it Taxi Driver? Oh. They, um, well, what what Scorsese did is he just kind of desaturated the color a Mm -hmm. little bit and then just put it out. 
So, but I love that Carpenters is even better though. How do you, could you get away <laughs> honestly, with something Honestly, the like MPAA is a bunch of bullshit anyway, so. I, on, honestly though, back then, I mean, when I, when I refer to this movie as a drive-in movie, yeah. that's pretty much what it was in the United States. It was, this was played in exploitation houses and drive-in theaters and there was a whole substrata of film distribution that really doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. That, yeah, you could, once you could get it past the initial MPAA and get that stamp, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to do. And a lot of films, especially horror movies at the time, did the Scorsese thing where they would either, they would, you know, mess with the fake blood so it didn't, certain colors were objected to by the MPAA. Mm. And um, the most hilarious thing about all of this is Typically, especially in this era, any changes that were made to appease the MPAA only actually helped to draw further attention of the audience yeah. to the violence yeah. because the cuts made no sense. It only accentuated the murder <laughs> and the violence, completely defeating the purpose of the MPAA. And before we get too far along and cracking down the MPAA, we can't forget about our friends in the UK who had the video nasties list, which had the most <laughs> random assortment of things yeah. that old British crones could get in their twats uh, <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> about and just be like, oh, this is objectionable. I can't do the voice, no. the accent, but this is objectionable. And then all of a sudden of it was banned. And it was like, it's the most random list of movies ever. So Puritanism is everywhere, including countries that kick the Puritans out. Yeah, that tracks. Have we said all we need to say about this one short moment in the movie i think it's honestly um it was the one that when i first saw that took my breath away i yeah. didn't know that it was coming i didn't either although i thought he's gonna do it because of you know, carpenter movies but the way that the scene plays out of he knows that you know movie conventions yeah and he he lets that scene play out as slowly as possible because he's like well surely he's not gonna do it yeah and then, then it just lingers before they even get to the ice cream truck, the baddies, yeah. the multicultural people of all nations gang. Yeah. The Benetton gang, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, but you're like, there's no chance. There's no chance. And then you're like, well, maybe he is. And then you're like, nah, he won't. But maybe he will. Yeah. Oh, God, he's not going to do it, is he? And just when you think, oh, oh God, he's going to do it, it doesn't happen. You're like, I knew it. Movies would never do that. And then she's like, hey. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Don't go and, back. They'll go back, and then you still think, well, they're probably not going to do it. And even the way I think what sells it the most is the way that the ga- the gang leader is curb stomping the ice cream man. By the time we get back to the truck, they're stomping the life out of this guy. And he's there, and he doesn't even look at the girl. He slowly raises the gun, slowly extends it, doesn't look, and just shoots her square in the chest. The blood splatters seemingly realistically. It's the, one of the best squibs I've ever seen. Yeah. And then she just, if she is in shock that she's been shot. Yeah. If she, it's not a movie fall where she just instantly goes into a death, you know, performance. Yeah. She, she's still holding her ice cream cone, slowly looks down, and then just falls. And then the way that he just shows both of their lifeless bodies mm-hmm. as the gang just casually strolls away. Yeah. And just shows both of their bodies, not their faces. You can't really see their You see feet and an ice cream truck. It is masterfully done. If you're going to kill a kid on screen, this is the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was wild. I did not, not expect that. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, okay. It's all on for this movie. And this is after several people have been shot at close range like 
earlier in the film. So. Because we're, we've, we're used, even by the 70s, we've seen that. We've seen it since the, the Westerns that this movie is sort of imitating. Mm-hmm. We've seen a million people. Now, until the uh, Spaghetti Westerns, we hadn't seen blood. That's what the right. Italians brought to it was, you know, old Westerns, somebody gets shot in the gut, they'd hold their gut, they'd fall over it. You wouldn't see anything. Then uh, Sergio Leone came out and was like, nah, no, nope. everybody's going to be sweaty and dirty and speaking six languages and poorly dubbed and blood's going to go everywhere. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And so this is starting to creep its way in. It's not just the golden era of the Western that's showing up here. Mm. It's Carpenter, who likes to pretend he doesn't know the language of cinema, (laughs) but was sitting there watching so much Italian cinema. Obviously, Halloween is very Giallo-inspired. This is obviously very spaghetti Western-inspired. And because our one of our main heroes, who I think we're going to get to here in a second, is a classic spaghetti Western sort of man with no name almost kind of hero and he's <laughs> it's great it's he's a black hat who's forced into white hat position i think it's fantastic and the last thing i'll say on this rant of exuberance <laughs> about this film is i think this is the seedbed for everything you're going to see in carpenter prime carpenter the siege film that idea is going to emerge again in uh, prince of darkness only the dangers coming not just from without, but also from within mm-hmm. in more ways than one. Um, I think the shot composition here in the long, wide open John Ford-esque shots, um, you're going to see that in Halloween as, as, and the lighting as well. Um, yep. I think uh, Napoleon is, I said this back in the day, I hold to it. He's 100% the prototype for Snake Plissken. Yep. When he gets knocked out of that chair and he goes, I don't sit in chairs as good as I used to, which is, I think, one of the all-time great lines. And then he whips that chain around him because the guy took a cheap shot and he goes, you don't stand as good as you used to. (laughs) You could just hear Kurt Russell say that. You know, Uh, it's just, it's like, oh my God, it's all here. It's it's just all right here. Even um, Lori Zimmer's character is is Lee? Mm -hmm. Lee? Lee? Lee. That's a female archetype. The tough as nails, mm-hmm. female, but still sort of soft, sort of sexy, but not really, but not really. I mean, that shows up even in Big Trouble Little China with the uh, Kim Cattrall character where they don't really, they're kind of, there's something there, but it doesn't happen. And then the guy just walks away. And it's like everything you love about every other Carpenter movie you've ever seen, it all is in this movie <laughs> in proto form. Yeah. Yeah. I, shit. Can I just co-sign what you said and just do I have to I know, say anything? I got a crop I'm, I'm sorry. Cross <laughs> off my Snake Plissken thing too that I had. <laughs> but yeah, no, Jason's exactly right. And I think the key of why that scene again is so powerful, A, because he does tease you with it. He really is Chekhov's, you know, ice cream girl. You know, at some point something's yeah. likely gonna happen. But it's the hook for the whole film is that yes. scene. That's what draws you in. And it is still, um, to this day, shocking. The movie is what? It's approaching 50, if not 50. Yeah, it's 74, right? So Yeah. 48 years old. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's exactly it. Jason's exact, got it exactly right. And I, I, think, I think it also, you, you love the movie that all takes place in a day. Yeah. I love the Siege movie, and it's kind of the same thing. I also like movies, when they're done well, where it's a siege uh, but it's a ragtag group of people who have to team up. Yeah. And there are so many elements of this movie, including our our main lead, that are also lifted from another exploitation movie made just a little bit less than a decade previous, which is Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Where there is a group of strangers who, through some 
I mean, even the way he shoots this gang at times when they're yes. running and crisscrossing, they're almost like fast zombies because they're, they're so faceless and nameless. Yeah. And it's just hands reaching through the window and it's just barricades and it gets very claustrophobic. And that's when I think the last 30 minutes of this movie really starts to sizzle. And you're like, okay, I see John Ford. I see Romero. Mm-hmm. I see... Sergio Leone, I see all these influences. Don't pretend you didn't go to USC, I- <laughs> you cranky old man. Yeah. <laughs> he does- you knew George Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese and De Palma. You knew these guys. <laughs> Don't pretend like you didn't. Yeah, no, I mean, he does. You're right. If, if he's, it, he does say, I think it was an interview from years ago, where he talks about technique. And really, his whole thing is about eliciting emotion. And then that's kind of how, you hooks, how he hooks you in. Which is like we said, yeah. is exactly what happens with when the girl gets shot. But I love too. You're right about the Night of the Living Dead comparison. It definitely has that that vibe to it as well. So um, I I do appreciate that. I'm curious what you what you think about that because I think the film just busts out of the gate, and then I think there's a point a point where it meanders a bit because I think mm-hmm. Carpenter's mm-hmm. concerned that he has to hit a, a certain runtime. So yeah. we do have some elongated kind of scenes of people running down halls or having conversations and stuff, right? So I think he's got to beef up the runtime a little bit. But I agree with you. When we get that final 20 minutes, half hour, it does kind of pick up again. It's funny because it does have that kind of classic Western pacing, but it's mm-hmm. kind of via a rope-a-dope where he's fooling you into thinking that's what he's gonna, what's going to happen. And then, boom, you get that kind of whole exploitation, you know, Night of the Living Dead feel as well. Well, even the whole the whole little, I mean, the way Napoleon speaks is very much like a cowboy. Oh yeah, speaks in those movies, and the you know, stranger in a strange town. You know, um, uh, I love the inversion of it. The by the numbers person is the the black gentleman, especially in this era. Mm-hmm. The, the squeaky clean coming from the nice house in the suburbs. Yeah, you know, who wants to be a hero? It's one of my favorite lines in all of movies. Bishop, there are no heroes anymore, only men who take orders. I think that is a phenomenal line. Literally, I get goosebumps when I say it. Yeah. It is. This movie is so full of those lines. Even uh, Napoleon is constantly talking to Tony Burton, who I love. He's one of my favorite character actors. You would know him for the Rocky series. He plays Duke, Duke Evers. Um, uh, He's constantly talking about get to the border, get to the border, get to the border. You just got to get to the border. That's obvious. Like, what border? They're in the middle of like, like a neighborhood in Los Angeles. I think you know. It's like, yeah. what are you talking yeah. about? But it's obviously that Western illusion, and um, yeah, I I love I love that. One of the, one of the things I love most about this movie is it's a movie that is tapping into white fear about urban blight. Mm-hmm. Well, there are pockets of cities. This was especially true in the seventies, eighties. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily not true. It's just that they weren't looking for the reasons why those things were happening. And you're coming off of the failed war in Vietnam. Mm. You're coming off, you know, Kennedy assassination, failed Vietnam War. American morale is at an all-time low from being at an all-time high. The economy is collapsing. You know, you're in, you got oil shortages, you got bread shortages, record high inflation. Uh, Sound familiar? Uh, (laughs) You've got absolute decay of infrastructure, especially in larger cities, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. Uh, increased poverty rates, increased drug rates. And so much of that was being put on the backs of people of color. Yeah. Carpenter, when he gives his gang, it's people of every color of the band. Yes. Yep. 
and people of every color are the good guys. And the main good guy is a black guy. Yeah. And he got out of that neighborhood and he worked his way out of it. And he now lives in a very nice home because we get to see it. Yes. And he's got a squeaky clean uniform and he he's kind of milk toast, honestly. You know, he's kind of a nerd. And <laughs> the street smart guy is this hick. It's this white hick with this crazy name, you know, and it's like, what is this accent? It's kind of Southern, but kind of not. Like, what are you? <laughs> But you're on death row, and he really is a killer, and he's not a good guy. Yeah. But we kind of like him, and it just – it works so well. And he takes our fears about urban blight and gay, street gangs and gangs – of you know, multi-ethnic gangs are going to come and get you, and they're going to kill your little white daughter. And he's <laughs> like, that's the movie I'm making, right? Yeah. The young, innocent little white girl shot down in the streets of the ghetto by people of color, but I'm going to invert and twist, and when you think you know what the story is going to be – uh, it's not going to be what you think it is. And, and then, and then underneath all of that, I get to make my little Western too. <laughs> and it was just yeah. like, so great. So masterful. I think one of the best things about watching older films too, is taking in, just like you said, Jason, what's going on at the time the film yeah. is made. Horror films, particularly exploitation films are really just showing a mirror to this current culture and society that's going on at yeah. that time. And having that knowledge, just like you just provided to us, really adds added depth and meaning to what you're watching. So I would always suggest doing that and not to give people homework assignments, but <laughs> have some appreciation, respect or understanding of what's going on at yeah. the time a film is made. And it'll feel that much richer to you when you're watching it. Yeah, I especially love too how um, our lieutenant is like in disbelief. He's like, but we're in the middle of a city and like he's a cop like yep. he should he should know kind of how things are like what the state of things are and even he is in disbelief that the infrastructure that he believes is there to keep people safe does not exist right there it, it doesn't exist for that neighborhood right it doesn't exist there yep. they are in essentially like a black hole where nobody yes. can hear that things are going on. The gang knows exactly what they're doing. They're sneaking out there and cleaning it up. So no one will come by. Yep. No one will know. And it is like they are the isolation is just as much a part of their attack as their guns are. And white flight has abandoned this neighborhood. Yeah. Systematically over time. And he left too. Yeah. He is in the suburbs and he's, you know, he's a fresh lieutenant and they're like, okay, you want, you know, you're, you're going to, you want your first assignment as a lieutenant, mm -hmm. you're going to leave the suburbs and you're going to go to where the system, the rules of the system don't apply to these people. Yeah. And it seems like it's an easy job. Everything's packed. All you got to do is direct people to the station in the next neighborhood we're going to abandon 10 years from now <laughs> and just move them down the line. And then all hell breaks loose because mm -hmm. something bad, bad luck shows up at his door. And you're, you're right. You're so right. Lady Juan. the entire time he's like, it's not, it's not supposed to be like this, yeah. right? Somebody's going to come. Somebody's got to save us. And he's a cop. Right. He right. doesn't understand because he's used to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. It's the streetwise criminal. Who's like, man, those rules don't apply here. They're not mm -hmm. coming. Nobody's coming to save you. Yeah. We're, we're done for whatever we got in these guns. That's all we got to protect us. So you better come up with something because we're going to die if we don't. And, it, and it's just, oh, it's great. It's so great. Yeah. I, I feel like that Jason and I have really kind of 
centered and talked about our love for uh, Assault Precinct 13. <laughs> but I, I'm curious, one, what were your feelings watching this thing? Did you enjoy this? What did what did you get out of it? Yeah, I I really did. I I honestly wasn't expecting to. I did, like I've said, you know, however many episodes we have that many times before. I don't prepare before the first watch. I go in completely cold, and so I knew the name of it. I knew there was a remake, and I was like, okay. Let's let's find out what happens in this movie. So I was pleasantly surprised as I realized like, ooh, oh my gosh, this is only going to be in about a day. Like I was getting all excited because I love that. I don't know why. I don't know how to explain it. But when those are the parameters for a movie, I am just instantly more engaged than if I were, you know, oh, how long is this journey of somebody's experience like how long is the story gonna go is this decades is this year who knows but like to just go through a day i i don't know it just immediately gets me and then i really i enjoyed like the stories kind of coming together from like watching uh the dad and his daughter talking shit about i guess where their grandma lives i don't know i couldn't tell because like the little girl was calling her by a name and i'm like i don't know (laughs) (laughs) I liked seeing kind of all these pieces coming to all these different directions. They're going to come to one point and something's going to go down. It was it was just so spooky. I loved how massive the gang was and that nobody really talks and they just like sneak out and then they sneak away. And it was it's claustrophobic in the coolest way. Mm. I really, really enjoyed it. That's good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you now, if I remember correctly, Juan, your exposure to Carpenter, you've seen about, what, a little less than half of his oeuvre? Oh, definitely less. I think we counted last time it was like four. Okay. Uh, yeah. Jason, I'm I'm thinking like you're a little more steeped in the Carpenterism. You seen them all? I've seen them all. Another close to bo- middle-aged white guy who grew up in that <laughs> is kind of his key area, right? Yeah, including body bags for Showtime. I've seen them all. Nice. All right. So, and you <laughs> stated that you felt that you could see he's laying the groundwork here, right? The seeding of his future career is here. And I I agree with that. I, I So much to the point that I, it doesn't still, doesn't quite feel like a Carpenter film quite yet. He does feel like a director who's still kind of finding his way and figuring things out. Because a lot of his stuff that we'll end up seeing, for me, always kind of has this quality to it where it feels like things are like in this other fantastical dimension. Like everything's real, but everything kind of is slightly off, right? Like there's kind of like a dreamlike feel to a lot of his, I think, most popular films. So I think... The thing is, is is his masterpiece, and the thing that's probably the most rooted in um, reality, which I know is a, probably a crazy thing to say, given the concept <laughs> of the movie. But still, you watch Prince of Darkness, They Live, right? All the Big Trouble in Little China. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of has this weird, almost slightly off dreamlike state to it. But you, you can, as you said, I think there's some of that beginning here. But this is much more raw, and it's just not quite there yet. So, But I agree with you. You can definitely see the underpinnings of what he's going to become. No, I get it. He's definitely an auteur, and he definitely has a sensibility to him that there is an almost slightly askew hyper-reality to his movies because his movies are almost all reflecting on some aspect of... um our world or the world at the time that he was making these films. And, and there's a layer of, uh, uh, 
sort of distant cynicism as but but also fantasy that applies yeah. to a lot of his films. And I think the only reason the thing doesn't have that is because it's it's the the condition of the setting of that film is already so otherworldly based on being in the Arctic. So mm-hmm. there it's he's not reflecting to us our world like he's trying to with They Live or Prince of Darkness or anywhere else. We don't there's no the establishing shots are of the ice. Right. You know, and like a shack in a distance. It's it's so it's that movie's about isolation and paranoia. I think there's a reason why of all directors, including directors of science fiction, horror and action, his work is the one that has essentially created one a genre of music, which is all about mood, right? And yeah. two, um probably the most most amount of alternative artwork from fans mm. and posters because um when you really watch a lot of his movies, there's sort of a starkness to them. He's a very almost economical director. Yeah, uh, he's not like a Spielberg or whatever. You know, he's 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 there's almost a workmanlike quality to the way that he shoots movies. Um, minimal coverages, stuff like that. He just kind of mm-hmm. sets a camera, a lot of flat camera shots, yeah. just a lot of wide open. And yet, how much? If you just Google John Carpenter and go to mm-hmm. images, and like everything is some kind of fan made creation. And somehow, through the mood that he conveys, and almost it's almost like the, again, you'll get to it in your next episode, the mask of Michael Myers. It's almost as if you're able to project. He gives you enough, somehow stylistically and in mood, that your imagination runs wild, but it's not actually on the screen for the most part. It's He's communicating to you on some sort of weird te- telepathic cinematic level that only the best filmmakers can <laughs> and you're right that language it's not quite dialed in i think part of it is there's so many scenes especially scenes between napoleon and the secretary uh, but even napoleon and bishop where um the cut should come about three seconds earlier than it does yeah. <laughs> and when you when you get to escape from new york those cuts are there mm. and i think the biggest weakness of the film is that as as Great as he is at writing hard-boiled exploitation dialogue and Western dialogue and kind of this this sort of cynical machismo dialogue, um, pulpy, you know, almost. Yeah. Uh, as good as he is at that, as good as he is with his minimalism and choosing his shots and working with great cinematographers, uh, here he's working with Douglas Knapp, whose who's cinematography looks like a hell of a lot like Dean Cundy, but is not Dean Cundy. Yeah. So it makes me wonder when Cundy comes on in the next couple films if he's like, shoot it like this, shoot it like that. <laughs> right. Because if you showed people this movie and said, well, Dean Cundy shot this, they would believe you. Yeah. Because the language is almost the same. So that's very interesting. Um, but I think that he's not quite there yet because the one thing I don't think he is is I don't think he's an editor. Mm. And I don't think he has – I think you're right. I think there is stretching to get to the runtime. For sure. But I think it's also <laughs> he's just not very good at editing. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> and he doesn't edit a lot of his other films, and they feel tighter, and they it, it it pulls the minimalism and the sizzle together in a way that makes Carpenter one of the most unique filmmakers. So it's not quite there yet. Yeah, I one thing interesting too. This is his first time working with Deborah Hill, right? This is the the debut of their partnership. Yes, she was an assistant editor. There you go. Oh well. Mm. Wow. When are they, when do their romantic relationship officially start? Because maybe that maybe maybe they were too busy uh, falling in love to edit the film because it definitely <laughs> needs to be cut a little tighter. 
I I don't think it could have been because I think that's the ninety minutes, right? You got to clear what eighty? Yeah, I think you only have to be at eight. Like a, well, yeah, I thought it was eighty eight. It might be actually eighty eight. It might be yeah. yeah it might be eighty eight. Hold on, let's let's look up the exact one. No, it's only eighty. Okay, I thought it was eighty eight. Way to go, Scalzo! Yeah. It's just back to the future, back to the future in your brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. All right, so we could have could have tightened it up a little bit. Well, I guess that's my question to you guys. Kicking it back over to you, do you think this movie works better at eighty minutes as opposed to the ninety one that it's currently sitting at? So. Given what we just talked about, about, you know, certain scenes go just a little bit too long. I want to say yes. But when I finished it, I was like, what is already over? Like I was not really ready. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I I think there's one thing where you could say you want it to go a little longer. But if there's enough padding before we get to that, like we like Jason had said, that last 30 minutes just hums along. But it takes us a while to get there. Yeah. I just think that sometimes it's good that a movie leaves you wanting more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think movies today have almost the opposite problem. I'm like, oh man, this, this is great. And then it goes on for 45 to 50 more minutes. You're like, I'm full. Stop <laughs> being a movie. Shut yourself off. No more. And then it degrades that, that 90 minutes or even two hours that you really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe it doesn't need a full 10 minute trim, but maybe. Three, four minutes yeah. just to get some of that. Just so some of those one-liners and some of those zingers really land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because it just kind of just, it lands. You're like, oh, yeah. And then it just sits there. And you're like, okay, all right, Sorry. all right, move along. Yeah. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> you know, okay, we're just staring at each other now awkwardly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. There were definitely a couple of times where I was like, oh, did I sit on the remote? Like, did I pause yeah. it real quick? And it's like, <laughs> nope, we're just lingering. I'm like, oh, okay. Everybody's just looking at each other yeah. in the middle of this police station. <laughs> have have either of you seen the remake? I've yeah. yeah I have not. Not a fan. I remember thinking afterwards, after I saw the original, I remember retroactively going back and going, you kind of missed the point because they, they race flipped the characters. Yeah. They're like, Lawrence Fishburne's the bad guy. And I was like, oh, oh no. That's, that's kind of missing the point of the first <laughs> movie. <laughs> and they don't even name him Napoleon. <laughs> Marion uh, Bishop is his name. Yeah, well, yeah, they make him Bishop, but he becomes the bad guy. Yeah, it's like a crime like, boss oh, or no. something. Yeah, oh yeah, he's a full-on gangster. And it's like, oh no, and like some of his, from what I remember, it's been a long time. Some of his gang has to come in and help Ethan Hawke, and are they going to double cross each other? That's kind of the whole time is like, who's going to screw who, and is Ethan Co- Hawke a dirty cop? And it's like. Oh, you've added too much. You've you've added yeah. six pounds of shit to a ten pound bag. Yeah. <laughs> what what makes this movie so great is that it is ten pounds of awesome in a ten pound bag. Mm-hmm. Maybe twelve pounds of awesome in a ten pound bag. <laughs> you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a little too, maybe it's a little too much. So you know, we need to trim it down a little bit. Maybe ten pounds of awesome, twelve two pounds of shit. But <laughs> bag's starting to tear. But it's still it's still good on the whole, and I've strained this metaphor way too far. I, I was hoping you're going to keep going, but okay. Like a garbage bag full of awesome and shit. Now, uh, I'd like to ask you guys again. I want to ask you guys a question. Flip the script back to you. Start with Lady Wan. Lady Wan, for those that don't know, is a master of thinking through the real world implications of movies. <laughs> Napoleon goes to death row after this, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, he, and, he and gonna, is killed by and is killed by the state of California. Yeah, he gonna get. Uh, what did California do then? The chair, probably lethal injection. I think they they're a civilized place where they stopped doing that. Unlike Florida, 
Florida, they don't even execute you. They just let you live there, and eventually the COVID will get you. <laughs> or, or the, the gators. gators. <laughs> or the gators, yeah. Or the yeah. whites. Yeah, no, for sure. He he is <laughs> going shooting. to death row, and yeah. he he's going to get murdered by the state. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's all happening. Does Lee ever visit him in jail? Does, nope. Is she there for his execution? Does she ever write him a letter? Nope, never. No jailhouse wedding for the two of them? Not. They never see each other again. Yeah, okay. Chris, you agree with Lady Wong? Yeah, I have really no notes. So I think that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and I think that's would be the perfect thing for Carpenter's film, right? That, that kind of uh, nihilistic ending for even the mm-hmm. hero, if I may, uh, of, of the film. Yeah, exactly. I was born at a time. Yeah. And he's like, we were out of time. He's like, I was born at a time. He's like, oh, man. <laughs> um, the part where I know this movie gets me is as sparse as it is. When Bishop says to the other cop who's going to put him in cuffs, get away from him. And then he has to, like, compose yeah. himself, you know. Yeah. And put his feelings back inside it because he's a man of the state. He's a man who follows orders. Yes. Um, I was just like. Come on, Bishop. Get him the fuck out of there. Let him sli- let him slip out that hatch right behind you, and he doesn't. No, no. He could have easily been like, all right, buddy, you saved my life. I'm going to get you out of here. I don't know where he went. It's right there. The escape is right there. And he doesn't nope. do it. He marches him with dignity. Yes. With, with dignity as equals because they're side by side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he's still marching him to his death. He, and he does that, that at least. But yeah, that's fucking it. sucks. And I'm like, <laughs> the fact that you got me on board with this murderer yeah right this criminal this smart ass criminal means the movie works for me yeah it's it's a it's a a happy ending that is still really really unhappy because everybody's dead except for the three of them he will be killed and uh the two of them are are super super fucked up can i just mention one more cool thing yes all right but just so long when (laughs) the terminator 2 style motorcycle cops are walking down the hallway and there's all these charred multinational gangsters, gangbangers in the hallway piled up on each other and they're like stepping over the corpses and there's nothing but a wall of smoke and you can barely see and they don't know if it's gang members in there or not and then the it slowly fades up and it's our three protagonists standing there. That's one of the coolest fucking shots <laughs> in all of Carpenter's work. Yeah. Because to time it... I don't know how they did it on a $100,000 budget to where they have a perfect wall of impenetrable smoke where you do not know who's there. We do, but they wouldn't know who's on the other side. And then it lifts perfectly. Yeah. I don't know how they did it, but it is incredible. I think that's also what makes this movie, to me, so great. It makes me all giggly about it, <laughs> is it was made for no money, mm-hmm. even in the 70s. No money. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Milk money. And and he bet the milk money. Yeah. And it didn't pay off because the movie flopped. But we're talking about it now. (laughs) (laughs) It was all worth it just for this podcast episode. Yeah. It was all worth it for the way I feel inside in my belly talking about it. Well, it was a big enough hit, right? Gave him the ability to make another film that then uh, launched his career, I guess, officially. But the story is that um, it wasn't a big enough hit. And he had to go to some unscrupulous producers who were like, hey, you made an exploitation movie. Make an exploitation movie for us about a stalker who stalks babysitters. Something just to slap into the drive-in, some real junk. And out of a chip on his shoulder, he's like, 
I'm going to make a fucking babysitter stalker movie. I'm going to make it the best goddamn fucking movie I can. <laughs> yeah. And he did. So you'll get to that next next time. Yeah. Is uh is there anything else we need to cover about the film itself before we let Chris have his uh Scalzo score corner? I'm only here for the Scalzo score corner. Let's go. <laughs> Let's get into the synth. There you go. Uh, I think when we first decided we were going to do this, and I think I pushed this from the beginning of the show, even season one, <laughs> I was yeah. pushing for Carpenter. Because one of my th- favorite things about him is his score work. And I think Assault on Precinct 13 is one of the best things he's ever done. Uh, I love almost all of his work, but this thing, is, in a weird way, is timeless to me. It holds up to this day, 20, 30, 40 years on. It is still, because it's so simple, yeah. right? But it is so catchy. And he takes, from what I understand, I read that he kind of borrowed from Lilo Schifrin's Dirty Harry with a mashup of Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. <laughs> yeah. And then he comes <laughs> up with this really simple, but catchy and relentless beat, right? And it just perfectly captures the film and the surroundings and everything about it. It's really, it's... One of my favorite scores. I mean, it's it. Is, I'm not sure what else to say. It's just exceptionally solid stuff. Captures the mood perfectly, mm-hmm. and is the beginning really for me of the whole synth movement in cinema. I mean, right, Jason? That's kind of what you had started to say. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, necessity being the mother of invention, art out of adversity. It's because they cannot hire anybody to do the score for this movie, and they do not have access to instruments. <laughs> But he's forward-thinking enough to know, man, if I just get me a Moog or get access to a keyboard or a synthesizer, I can just kind of steal a bunch of shit and no one's going to notice. <laughs> and then it ends up becoming, you know, he, again, he's going to do it for Halloween. He's going to do it for so many of his films. And uh, and now he's just doing it because he just loves making music. Yeah. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it, it's, it, it completely changed the way film scores are done. Um, he's a definitely a pioneer in that category, and he is a pioneer of. Uh, there's literally multiple genres and iterations off of those genres, where the only note is no pun intended <laughs> that it has to sound like John Carpenter. It has to sa- it has to be a new song that sounds like something John Carpenter would have put into a movie filled with violence set at night in 1978, <laughs> and and and. I love all of that music. So I mean, you guys, Again, modern day composers, you, yeah, oh, so much guys like Rob, um, Disaster Piece. Like if you hear the scores for that Maniac remake, which is yeah. fantastic, it follows again another fantastic yes. one. All owes homage and you know owes to Carpenter in this in this work here. So yeah, great stuff. I'm yeah. a big synth guy generally though too, and, and, and I think it even me my appreciation for synth not just growing up in the '80s. Would I think stems originally from Carpenter's '80s score for his horror films? I listen to them like to this all the time. Prince mm-hmm. of Darkness, I love. I love Halloween Three. Uh, just all yes. that stuff. So, yeah. yep. Good time. Can you, can you just hit a, hit a synth beat for me, real quick? Right. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, synth people or uh uh. Uh, CG, 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 yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> My Twitter handle, as they yeah, say. yeah, yeah. Um, who are you? I think it's a Moog. I think he's using a Moog synthesizer, yeah. right? Because the Moog gives you that 
that very like that deep bass. The, honestly, play that again for me, real quick. There's some rap in there. There is some West Coast. Oh yeah. Gangster rap of the late 80s, like Ice Cube, some NWA, but he's about 10 years ahead of them. And I think that that is, you only get that through that real, like, bassy, baritone, wobbly Moog synthesizer of the era. Yeah, oh yeah. There it is. <laughs> Tell me you can't hear Easy e rapping over that about <laughs> killing people, right? Oh my God. That's why it's so timeless. It's mm-hmm. just like, it's just, it's so clear. It's so simple. The the thing that Carpenter excelled at better than anybody, especially for like a cranky old white guy, <laughs> bass lines. The bass parts of all of the stuff that he does are just incredible. You're like, oh my God. It's it's like funkier than it has any right to be, but also <laughs> very dark and malevolent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which captures the spirit of his film work. He's a very dark, malevolent, and funky old man. <laughs> <laughs> And he's been he's been about 120 years old for the last 55 years. I don't know how he does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marlboros. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's let's do our rating. Then let's do our favorite performances, and then we'll get into our our special for for this season. So, on a our rating scale for the Carpenter season is a scale of one to five synths, and only half synths are allowed. Synths cannot be split into smaller pieces than halves chris would you like to go first with your synth score sure so wait, i gotta get <laughs> it sounds so sad about it okay i i keep going back and forth on this because i i, I don't i think the film does still have some problems and, um so i think i'm gonna go three and a half i think at times outside of the one-liners that Jason mentions, I think it is a bit underwritten. I think some of the, the script generally isn't terribly good. It's more <laughs> like they focused on, let's give Napoleon this kick-ass line, and then let's not really sweat anybody else. Um, so I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I really like when uh, Lee is getting the lieutenant coffee, and she's black. He's like, for over 30 years. That's a pretty good line. Come that's on, fair. that's a pretty good line. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what I think. It's it's too focused, I think, on killer lines than it is I don't know. It's a western. No, you're right. You know what? That's a very good point. But I I don't know. I'll stick with, with, three, and with a half? three and a half for now. Okay. Yeah. Jason. What do you got? First I'd like to say, Chris, shut your dirty whore mouth. <laughs> no. Um this is a to me it's a four out of five. It's four out of five cents. Um I like that it's underwritten. Mm-hmm. This is this isn't even my style, baby, but I'm gonna put it out there. This is a cookie or a mug cake <laughs> that was put into the microwave, but it's a little bit underdone, so it's still gooey in the middle. It's underbaked, and I mean that in the best way possible. I love the fact that it's a little underwritten. I love the fact that it's we don't have any scene where somebody sits down and goes. You want to know how I got my name? When I was five years old, my <laughs> daddy said to me, I don't give a shit. Yeah. It doesn't matter because this is a life and death situation. And I love it. It's just like, I'll tell you when we're dying, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the guy dies, he's like, shame. He's like, I never got a chance to tell him. <laughs> and the moment presented itself. That's the only acknowledgement <laughs> of his death. And it's like, oh, God. You know, I just, yeah. I love that. I love the fact that it's pulpy. 
and underwritten. And also, I think Lee has some great lines herself. Yes. And I love the fact that she's the most cynical character in the whole movie. Mm. If you really get down to it. She's she's been around cops this whole time. Mm-hmm. And she's she's just like, you can't trust these people. You can't yeah. trust cops. <laughs> Nobody's coming to save us. Like, she's not surprised at all. So, I, uh, four to five. Four to five cents. There you go. Yeah. I dug this a lot. I I like the underbaked uh, metaphor because I like my cookies to be like barely safe to eat. Um, <laughs> so I lo- that works for me. I think the performances are great. I think you know the action was shocking at times and and always cool. Uh, killer score, ninety minutes, uh, four and a half out of five for me. Four and a half. The mm-hmm. lady one is the only person to ever get trigonosis from a cookie. I mean, it, if it's a good enough cookie, it's worth it. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> are those chocolate chips or are those hookworms? <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. O- only a colonoscopy could tell for sure. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so let's... let's... This is regular vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> That's Lady Wan's proctologist. Oh, hey, these are hookworms. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> okay. Let's talk about our... Uh, let's each pick our favorite performance in the film. Um, I'm I'm just going to go first here because I probably have the least to say. I, I am saying Napoleon just for the one-liners. Uh, he's he's my favorite performance in this. So so that is that is my pick. Chris, who you got? Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you entirely. I think that he is the most interesting character in the film. He's the most dynamic. He's the one you want to spend the most time with. So uh, I agree with you entirely. I think Darwin Johnston is really the only choice, just Napoleon. Jason, do you disagree? I'm going with Lori Zimmer Woo-hoo. as Lee. I think she pops off the screen. I think she is a woman in an exploitation film presented with utmost dignity. Yeah. I think she's a strong, badass female character. She gets shot in a fucking arm and doesn't flinch. Yeah. And just stands there because you, you, this is a lady who has seen some shit. Yeah. She's not serious. And the thing is, it's just hinted at. It's just little things. She says, she's, definitely not just your standard cliche 1970s secretary mm-hmm. and she's fantastic i think she's was uh, laurie zimmer only starred in like five things two of them were tv and movies and just quit acting this is her most notable thing i think she's a good actress i mm-hmm. think she's i think there are notes here in her performance that will come up again in meg foster's performance in they live um Hmm. Although Meg Foster's her own, you know, obviously her own person, accomplished actress. I think they look similar. I think Carpenter definitely likes to, likes to cast a type and they play <laughs> similar characters and they're kind of both hard and he likes strong, hard edged women, hence probably Deborah Hill. And um, <laughs> I think she's fantastic. I think she's an under celebrated uh, actor in this film. So I'm going to go with Lori Zimmer. Yeah. Good for yeah. you. She's great. We'll, we'll put it up on Twitter. People can vote. Tell us. Who they agree with. Uh, How do we do that if you do three, though, and we both have the same one? Do you just do two? You yeah. Three run versus Andrew. binge movies, baby. <laughs> it yeah, it happened last season, too. So okay. I can I can handle it. I can do it. Uh, all right. Our like last. Say I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> I can handle things. <laughs> I'm smart. <laughs> 
I appreciate you really like, selling that. If you have to bellow out, <laughs> I'm smart. <laughs> you're not. What are you trust me? I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> As, while wearing an ascot no sir no <laughs> okay so our last our last little piece here is uh as we discussed last episode um That's, in today's world it would be i do my own research <laughs> oh my god i'm gonna lose it <sighs> okay why don't you vote for me for president <laughs> I'm a governor. <laughs> I've been running Florida. I'm smart. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> okay. All right. <laughs> our last our last little roundabout here. Uh, Carpenter's, you know, pretty open about some of the movies he's doing for a check. Some of the movies he's doing because he's interested in it. So this season we're adding... A rating of uh, zero to ten. How many fucks did John Carpenter give about <laughs> the making of this particular movie? So um, for this week's episode, um, my rating is a, a ten. I think he gave all the fucks about making this one. So uh, that's my pick here. Jason, how many fucks do you think he gave about this one? Are there half fucks that can be given? Oh, yeah. You can break it down into all kinds of decimals. Fucks can be oh. divided much smaller than synths can. Yes, they can. <laughs> um, Ask my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> I think this is an 8 out of 10 fucks. Really? And I, only, I only mark it down to an 8 because I think he, he, he wrote a script that he wanted to make, mm-hmm. to write. Probably had to pare it down, obviously, once uh, he had no money to make it. Mm. Uh, the direction's there. Uh, but as John T. Chance... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that, and now I know why. I was like, I think he kind of slipped in the editing. Maybe it's not that he's a bad editor. Maybe he was a distracted editor because there was a strong, no bullshit woman in the room with him, and that is obviously a turn on for him, as it is many a man. <laughs> Eight out of ten fucks. All right, Eight out of ten. Chris. Yeah, I think this is his. I'm with Juan. I think that as this being his first kind of real air quotes fi- feature. That um, he was very focused on this thing, uh, and kind of he was still kind of learning as he went with a lot of this stuff too. But in the end, I I don't know, I watched this thing and I felt like he was a hundred percent in. And I I like the I think it's funny too that we will never really not have an episode that won't have an explicit tag now because of this yeah. one category. But I appreciate Jason, you just blowing the doors off of that at least <laughs> five minutes in anyway, so it didn't really matter. But uh, no, yeah, I, I'm. How you I'm do a family you. friendly John Carpenter series? What the fuck are you talking about with Scalzo? me on it? Yeah, what? I can't. You Scalzo, Scalzo has some of the dirtiest, <laughs> the dirtiest mouth I've ever seen on a man. I had hopes maybe for Starman, but we'll see. I'm, I'm no, I'm gonna swear for sure. A family friendly fucking Starman, where a lady fucks a, st- a man from the stars. The entire movie's about fucking Scalzo. <laughs> yes, that's what it's about. That's all it's about. <laughs> Is Jeff Bridges just laying pipe? That's the whole film. <laughs> no, you get, it's the other way around. She's the aggressor. That's he goes, true. I don't know who I am. Where am I? Oh, I'm Starman. And then he's just getting railed by Karen Allen. <laughs> they called it should have called it Peg Man. <laughs> Jeff Bridges. Starman. Power bottom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
Um, <laughs> on that note, uh, thank you so much, Jason, for for joining us on this special episode. Get your plugs in. <laughs> Get those pegs in. Yeah. I, I think. Get it I in. Think, I think the. I never imagine assault on priest. Well, well, assault on priest Thursday. Holy moly! Um, I never imagine. There's probably some Napoleon Bishop fan fiction out there. Oh, my plugs! I don't even know now. <laughs> just, it was, we just had such a. We were bookend by sodomy. I'm lost. Um, I, <laughs> I, There's a day that ends in uh, Y for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, you can. You can find me on Twitter at binge movies. You can find my podcast, which. Uh, it's part of the radical left, according uh, <laughs> to a very angry MAGA fan on <laughs> Apple Podcast Reviews. On Apple Podcast, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms, we binge, we rank, we review movies with illustrious co-hosts, guest stars, film critics from around the world. We, we have a nice, uh, friendly debate. We cover the full spectrum of film, uh, and uh, it's a show that's very, very strange, deeply upsetting, um, sometimes <laughs> educational. Um, at the very least, some somebody somewhere out there finds it entertaining, and God bless those lost souls. <laughs> uh, and uh, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash binge movies, where we have whole separate series you can only hear on our Patreon feed. We got multiple tiers, starting off as low as, I think, $4 a month <laughs> for a completely independent podcast. I don't know why. But nobody will sponsor the show uh, as far as corporate America goes. I it couldn't might understand be it. All of the sodomy talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I don't yeah. get it. Yeah. I don't get it. So I wanted to ask Jason a question too before we let him go. So Juan, <laughs> we had talked a little bit beforehand that I was considering. I want to get another expert opinion on this. Uh, I was considering quitting the show. Yes, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> I was going to say retiring but quitting is fine so um i was i was gonna we had talked about on the first episode about me upgrading to uhd to 4k to a bunch of these carpenter films in fact i did get the halloween one so i did upgrade to that because it gets a brand new scan new color timing a whole bunch of stuff it's supposed to look fantastic so i pulled the trigger on that now there is a studio so studio canal did all the remasters for um, a bunch of them, like The Fog, They Live, Prince of Darkness, and uh, Escape from New York. Scream Factory has put them all out individually. With Here's the core question. So there's a Studio Canal 4-pack I can get for 50 bucks for all four of those films in UHD. But with just lossless, lossless, this old, is it, it's lossless audio? I think it is. There's only the Shout Factory can you get the Dolby Atmos tracks. Now, you're going to spend 25 bucks roughly each for each of the Scream Factories or 50 for all four, but you've done no Dolby Atmos. Now, I've gone back and forth. In the end, I decide, I think I'm going to go with the four pack because really, how good are those Dolby Atmos tracks going to sound on these 80s films? What would, well, what would you do? No. So here's the question. What is your home audio setup? I have I have a Dolby Atmos receiver and a 7.1 surround system. That's what you got to go with because I know that some people got the Studio Canal release and some of them, uh, because it depends on who you buy it through, they're region locked to the UK. And so... Well, the 4Ks aren't, right? Players. The UHDs are region free. I, I thought so as well, 
but if you read the reviews of them, really? it does, it's not working for some people in the United States. Because I was just looking at the same thing myself. So look at those reviews. I think if you are a music guy, you're a sound guy, I think sound is so important to Carpenter's work. Um, and I think, if anything, yes, they're 80s movies, they're 70s movies. I think that that sound, because it's synth-based, is actually going to be able to be transferred over. I think you 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 stop pinching your pennies here, brother, and <laughs> you're doing a podcast on Carpenter. You are the guy who cares about film scores yeah. more than anybody I've ever met. You go for it. Go for the Dolby. Yeah. Eh, I got to figure that out. I appreciate well, your... Not, well, he's not going to do it. Peter, well, here's... <laughs> Here's the problem. He's a, he's a cheap ass. Here's Come the on. core, core, core issue. You're poor. We get it. My <laughs> living room TV with the home theater system because we have this. We built the house. We had this, the theater system built into the to the ceiling. Oh, you're Ooh. not poor then. Okay. Uh, well, now because we built the house. Well, now you're poor because of that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but the TV out there is just a. It's a four or five year old HDR, sixty five inch television. Okay. It doesn't have Dolby Vision. The TV in my office is a 55-inch with Dolby Vision. It seems to but me. But I don't have problem. the Atmos yeah. set up in my office. you got to get another Atmos set up. Yeah, I think that's what I end up I end up having to do. Tell your wife that, listen, this is important for the screen run, one of the most popular podcasts out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's Definitely. an investment. Honestly, if you guys incorporate, it's a tax write-off. Come on, play the game here. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And with a name like Scalzo, you can certainly find an Atmos system that fell off the back of a truck. <laughs> You're in fucking Florida. I do know a guy. Yeah, you got to know a guy. <laughs> All right. I appreciate the feedback. I've been going back and forth on that. I thought I'd talk you to gotta a You got to go whole hog. You can't be half pregnant here, buddy. Let's go whole hog. All right. Especially here in Florida anymore. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm okay. glad I derailed okay. us for about 20 yeah. minutes. Thank you. Yeah. Remember how you made fun of me last episode because I can't wrap up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're, you're disrupting me. I had a plan. I had a plan. Well, so let's get I'm back gonna, on plan. I'm going to wrap up right now. So go listen to Binge Movies. Give Screen Run a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow at Screen Run. Chris is at CG Scalzo. I am at The Lady One. Follow Binge Movies. Be sure to vote for last movie standing when the next one comes around not because i'm personally invested but because it's important and uh yeah next episode we'll be back we're going to be talking about halloween have you seen halloween you've seen halloween yeah okay <laughs> thanks everybody now we're done <laughs> case you do I think you should just every episode scream at the mic. No, we're done. <laughs> I'm smart. <laughs> I know how to end a podcast. Oh. I can do things. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 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 <laughs>